I guess, how was your day? <laughs> um, day was actually fine. I, I had my, I had a day where I just decided to really kind of do nothing. Yeah, so. that's a solid type of day. Since, you know, the whole end of every semester when you're doing physics ends up being kind of stressful and takes it out on you, you know? Yeah, I wonder what it's like for your actual cognitive capacity, right? To be going from like fully loaded to, okay, you're you're absolutely doing nothing. That's actually true. I I actually kind of get worried about stuff like that too. Because humans are creatures of habit, right? And so I wonder if actually, if you could just find a good healthy spot of like being pretty busy as much as possible, then it would be better. Uh, But despite humans being creatures of habit, I feel like I am the worst creature of habit ever. Well, I think it's interesting because you can actually have a meta habit, right? I feel like a meta habit is procrastination. (laughs) You're you're right. Uh, That is very true, Uh, which makes me kind of sad. Because of really of all the meta habits that you could draw out of the proverbial universal hat. I yeah. feel like. <laughs> but I, I see. I don't think it's actually that crazy that it's the case, right? Because yeah. in terms of just it, like efficiency, it might be the most efficient in terms of time. Like you're, you're foregoing a lot of health in the process, but you're getting it done. <laughs> that is actually very true. You are spending it very short amount of time uh, to get a lot of work done when you procrastinate. I can see that being, I can see that being a draw for it. It just sucks because sometimes I wonder if any of my work takes a little bit of hit from it. You know, I feel like there are several schools of thought on this, but I'm pretty sure one of them indicates that given the actual time crunch, something about you is prompted to be a bit more resourceful, right? You, yeah. you, you have you have literally fewer resources so you have to be more creative that's that's definitely very interesting uh, you know maybe that's a better a healthier because <laughs> I'm usually looking at it in a more pessimistic way I won't lie well I mean it depends on if the thing that you're doing the activity that you're doing can benefit from the creativity so for instance if you're doing something highly technical where it's like a theoretical problem yeah maybe, maybe. <laughs> Now, yeah, now it's a maybe. Right. Well, chose the wrong field to go into then, didn't I? Hey, I, I don't know, man. Um, there, there are a lot of uh, comments that say, you know, physics is one of the most creative endeavors, right? Because you have to keep up with the creativity of, you know, physical laws, whatever that means. Yeah, you, you really have to be able to think outside the box. What do you think about that? Because uh, cultural perception around physicists has always been, you know, kind of uh, the mindless robot, the emotionless, you know, all savant. I think a lot of savant characters in the West have been like that. Well, so it's interesting because my exposure to physicists is not the savant type characters, right? My exposure to physicists are like the, popular, the, the popularizers of science and and they seem to have the best of both worlds. They have this deep appreciation for what is really underlying everything. And I say everything very loosely, yeah. but at the same time, they're able to communicate it so effectively. And they do it in such a way that really captures the, the beauty, for lack of a better word, of what's actually happening. So I hold them in very high regard. Yeah, I think guys like Richard Feynman, um, or uh, what was his name, and Sagan, 
we're all really good at that? Are those the kind of people you're thinking of? Yeah, more or less, right? The, the great orders of science. Yeah, and I wish people, I, I wish I could believe that more people in society, at least my society, you know, looked at physicists more like that, at scientists more like that. But I, to be completely honest, I think more of them look at, look at us like, you know, the Sheldon Coopers or any of the other names that are on the Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Just depressing. Well, it's interesting because it can become a, a positive feedback loop where you go into the field expecting to have that kind of stigma on you. Mm-hmm. And then you buy more into it and you're like, hmm, maybe part of this is actually right. And the next thing you know, I mean, because of the disproportionate representation in the community, you're, you're, you're sucked into it just by virtue of being there. Which I think is sad because I don't think that you should want to act like that. No, not at all. Especially because I think it sucks out the humanity out of science, which, I mean, you have to have in there. Right. I mean, there's something there's something inherently lost when you when you when you lose that kind of diversity, right? Just just by virtue of the diversity. Well, yeah, and especially when you. I mean, like, I think there's a reason why a bunch of bad guys in shows are the mad scientists in the West, at least, definitely, uh, is because we have sometimes kind of sucked out that humanity. Um, sometimes in the name of trying to be better, like, you know, quote unquote scientists, yeah. because, you know, science is supposed to be objective. Science is supposed to be cold and cruel, but all the best physicists I've ever known, you know, have those moments where they really are just like superhuman and they connect with, you know, the world around them. You know, Feynman was, I mean, absolutely fantastic at it, but you know, you have famous things of Oppenheimer, you know, when he created the atomic bomb, pretty much, uh, you know, of course, that was a huge project. But, you know, he was the one who was the most devastated about the pain he was about to be causing the entire world. And, yeah. you know, all the military people, the politicians around him gave no fucks. I mean, it's interesting. I don't think it's mutually exclusive in, in the most remote sense, right? It's, it's you have you can have this firm part of you that is empathic and still be a wonderful scientist. And furthermore, I think it takes both of those to, tr- to properly excel because in some sense, you don't really lose sight of why you're really doing this, right? Answering those big questions is, is, is I think, very empathic, right? It's, it's like we are taking, out, we're kind of indicating that this is our position in the universe and we is, I mean, is implicit in that is others. Yeah, I, I agree with that, especially because when I think about, you know, sadly, I've been, you know, I've been defending physicists here for this first 20 minutes, but I know physicists and I should say scientists as a whole who are kind of, you know, mean and unempathic, but very few of them I would consider like good scientists in my mind, um, you know. First one that comes to mind is like Neil deGrasse Tyson, stuff like that, where that guy's just mean. Yeah. I guess how would you, how would you quantify what you just said, right? Or how would you qualify what you just said? The, I mean, I actually don't think I have a great way. That's, we could talk about this a lot, actually, because it's something I struggle with for a long time. I don't think there's some like scientific way to qualify what I just said. It really is just a feeling of like, I just have to do a quick checklist in my head of like scientists I really like, both famous ones and ones that I've met, you know, in the field so far. And then ones I don't like. 
and, and the ones I don't think are successful. And a lot of the ones that I don't think are as successful as they could be, you know, were kind of, you know, mean, unable to make those connections with others, uh, you know, pompous and conceited. Because trust me, being pompous and conceited is easy to come by in the physics world. Yeah. And the science world. It's interesting. I mean, there's a book on this for, for mathematicians. It's called The Men of Mathematics. Right? The whole premise of the book is to humanize these prophets as they were. And it basically shows you some of them weren't even that clever. Some of them purchased the theorem. The ones who did actually come up with the theorems weren't these great, wonderful people. They were like skeevy, very, very, uh, you know, shady type dudes. Interesting. Yeah. Very I, interesting, I guess to, to comment on the pompous, right, that, that specific word, there's yeah. something very interesting that, that I've heard, and maybe it's just like a caricature that's been painted in my mind, that to properly succeed in academia or something that is as competitive as the academic realm, you, yeah. you got to have a little bit of that, that, that sauce, the special sauce that prevents you from, you know, throwing away the idea or theory that you have. And I could see that could grow out of control. Yeah, I could definitely see that as being true. And I feel like that's something that I need to be a little bit more truthful with myself that I sometimes can be like that. You know, I feel like I all growing up, I almost had to fight against that feeling. Um, you know, I know all growing up, I had a lot of people who would come to hate me. And I've been told to my face multiple times by people uh, that they really think I come across as like pompous and uh, conceited and stuff like that. I've never thought of myself that way, but I don't know. I think it's like something that might just be naturally like ingrained into me in my soul. And okay. uh, maybe, maybe you're right that there has to be some sort of embracing of it. Well, here, here's a question for you then. So you don't see it, others see it, and you're aware that others see it. So what, what is the process of consolidation? Because if enough people see it, that is scientific evidence almost that something, something is, there's a mismatch. You're right, there is. Um, it, you know, there's a very famous show, a uh, very famous anime that I love that really put like threw this into my face. When I say like the anime actually changed my life in this sense, it really did. Uh, and that's Evangelion. There's a whole scene at the very end of the show actually usually people trash on this part because it's really weird and experimental and mostly exists because the uh, studio ran out of budget um but the main character is talking to the ghost of one of the other characters in his head and he comes to that realization right that other people can have a perception of you that is different from your own perception of you and honestly both of them are real and you and even if you can't reconcile it you just kind of have to accept it and then try to work on it because that's how I had to do it because I'm like I think part of the reason I had that disconnect is because I am bad at, at uh, really reading and understanding other people sometimes so I just I kind of had to be not pompous I had to work on that so that I could accept other people's reality of me um and honestly i don't know if i do a good job of it even now there are some times where that disconnect still happens and when that disconnect gets thrown into my face and i become super aware that other people's perception of me is so different from my own like it is almost an existential soul crushing thing to me still to this day like i'm still not great at it yet because 
it's almost kind of like they're killing me. Like retroactively, they've destroyed the me that I think I am and created this new simulacrum uh, in its place that I don't think is genuine. But how can it not be genuine? It's like their experience. It's the exact same experience as mine, you know? Well, I think I think this is a point at which you have a very particular decision to make. You you decide to spend time and give that part of yourself away to the people that in some sense merit it, right? You're not going to go to some random and be like, okay, your perception of me is this. I'm going to change who I am. It's going to be, okay, you're someone who I've throughout however many experiences grown to value. I value our relationship. And because it's predicated on this empathy and you, you're telling me that this part of me is making you feel not so great. I'm going to give up a little bit of that, right? That is an amazingly smart insight, a very wise one, if I might say that I am very bad at, at, uh, at executing. Because yeah. you're right, you should. I mean, again, there's 7.5 billion people on this planet. You're going to even, you're going to interact with you know, probably thousands, tens of thousands of people in your life. If you get famous and you're on TV, it might even be in the hundreds of thousands or millions. Um, but how many of those are really going to matter to you? And how many of those can you really put in the time to care about? I mean, you're right. The answer is not very many. You should focus on the ones that matter to you. It's just really hard sometimes, especially when people can kind of throw it in your face. And then even worse, when people can affect you. Uh, who you don't think are very important, but maybe they're important in terms of your like actual physical life, whether it's a boss or like a boss of a boss who has some bad perception of you. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's super fair. You're you're, you're still right. Out. Like I, I'm only bringing this up because like this is what goes on in my mind. This is what stops me from being able to take those words of wisdom and really executing them. Yeah. I come from a deep place of empathy in this situation to you, right? I, I've been in the situation where I could change a very significant part of who I am to, to sort of ease into a particular environment. But I've, I've been there and I've done that and it doesn't work out because I can't genuinely express who I am. And it ends up hurting me in the long run. So in, in a very selfish way, but that ends up being, I think, a bit more selfless than I can give it credit for. It's beneficial to say, no, this, this is who I actually am. And uh, if you can't take it, then maybe you also have to do a little bit of that reconciliation. That's actually true. Do you think you got better at it when you became more comfortable with who you are? Not just comfortable, but like you understood who you were. Because I think sometimes that's my problem. Whereas I don't mind changing myself sometimes because I Every so often, there's or not every so often, but in certain parts of my identity, I don't feel a very strong identity. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Oh yeah, totally. I, I think you, yeah, again, to your point, it, it it was sort of after those those parts of my identity were a little bit more cemented than they were before that I, I took a stance. It, it was a very active stance, saying that ah, okay, you don't like me, it's cool, we'll move on, and uh, I've been better for it and better from it. Yeah. I hope, I hope I could definitely get that way in some ways. Yeah, but I think a large part of it has to do with experimentation, right? Yeah. I mean, like you're saying, the modulation of these different things gives you a sense of how much you should cement them. That actually makes me very happy here because it's something that I, I can actually have to actively do. I, I consider a lot of uh, social interactions, like 
how I've had to get better at them is through kind of experimenting. And I really do like make little mental notes. You know, when I screw one up real bad, I'm like, oh, okay, don't, don't do something like that. You know? Yeah. You see, it, if anything, it makes me feel, it, I'm very forgiving when I hear stories of like people who, you know, have weird or bad, awkward interactions with others and they end up trashing them. My mind is always first going to like, yeah, but what if they just didn't know how they were supposed to act? Like that wasn't them. They just made the wrong decision because like they don't know who they are yet. And they're like trying things out. Yeah. Hey, I mean, that in, in itself, in and of itself is a form of empathy. You have empathized with people who are, you know, in your situation. And, and that, that's, that's all it's about. Yeah. I try to be empathic. I think it's important. Yeah. I think it's very important. I mean, you mentioned in the workplace, right? You were saying perhaps this person, maybe they're not super important to you, but they're like very integral to your day-to-day life. That's a tricky yeah. one right? Because you don't want to give up your well-being. You don't want to quit your job just because you're not getting along with such and such person. But I think in that, in that sort of a relationship, it's a matter of perspective, perhaps, that you have to sort of compartmentalize who you are with who you're presenting yourself to be. And quite frankly, that's the stance I've taken that I will not, I will not make that compartmentalization. If I can't be the same person in both situations, I'm not going to put myself in the latter situation. Interesting. It's a yeah. choice. It's not, maybe it's not the best one, but it's the one that worked out so far. No, it's actually a good thing to know too. Cause I think there might be, there might be places where you can make the other choice and it still be healthy. I mean, you know, I'm a big believer in the diversity of mankind, right? Yeah. Uh, we're, we're for better or worse, not carbon copies of the same thing. I don't think the same life, the same morals, uh, the same cookie cutter outline is going to work for everybody. And it sucks to be completely I said for better or for worse, but let's be real. That sucks. It causes so many problems, but it's like I think it's something that's very inherent. Like that's the truth of the universe. I don't uh, think it sucks actually. I, I think that's kind of the beauty. That's where all the interesting stuff happens. I'm not saying that famine and war are interesting and that's why they're good. That's not what I'm saying there. It's just like there are other things like interesting uh, encounters with people of different identities that happen that can actually lead to, to, to better situations like art, for uh, example. That's actually true. I say it sucks, but like we probably have uh, been so successful uh, at pushing the bounds of thought as humans. Cause that's what we're really good at. We're really good at, you know, poop, 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 thinking uh, more than any other animal. Uh, and that's probably why we've come so far is that ability to think differently between people. You know, you really think that we're creating, uh, you know, rocket ships that can go into space and, you know, beautiful movies and all those if everyone just thought the same way. No, you're right. It just causes a lot of conflict sometimes, you know, when yeah. my reality is like inherently different from yours. That's fair. You know, I just, just, I'm trying to think of what you said here with the rocket ships. Some part of me immediately thought to, what if there is intelligent life on earth that just went through the calculations and realized that going down this path of mass communication and complexity is going to lead to the, like the death and the destruction of all life. And they were just like, you know what, we're just going to kick it back and we're just going to not communicate. It's going to be fine. We're just going to swim around and do things. That would honestly be insane. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. That's actually one of my favorite tropes in horror. I, 
in a, in a weird way, this is at least what I connect what you just said to, is like that forbidden knowledge idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, if anything, actually, I mean, you know, I live in America, so, you know, culturally, I know a lot of my stuff gets informed by Judeo-Christian stuff. Like, that is the start of humanity, is we obtained a forbidden knowledge in, uh, in that's really what the forbidden fruit represented, was this forbidden knowledge. Uh, and that led to the entirety of suffering in mankind. And a lot, a little bit, a lot like Buddhism, but more, even more pessimistic. It's actually one of the things I don't like that much about Christianity is like inherently in humanity because of that, we have like this sin. It's called like original sin. Mm -hmm. So no matter what, like just by being from these descendants of people who decided to try to gain, you know, forbidden knowledge, we are inherently sinful and terrible. And then I decided to go into science and gain more of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's juicy. It's the thing that you want. It's like the it most really is right. Our brain is somehow wired to not be bored because we poured so many resources into it. I know. And what's the best thing that you can give it is the thing that it wants the most. I, I don't know what that is, but the thing that's the most unknowable or the least known by many seems yeah. to fit the bill. And it's, it's fantastic. I mean, it's why I became a scientist is, uh, is, you know, you start learning about science as a kid and I had to do a project where I got to look stuff up and I started looking up physics stuff and just like, you know, when you look up pop physics stuff, like you get ridiculous stories of like antimatter and, you know, what are quarks and gluons. And it's just like, these physicists are figuring out a construction of the world that literally sounds fantastical that's so different from our everyday life lives but they've been able to show that no this is for right now the best model that we can get of our physical universe uh and it just felt like they had so much power you know then since they had all that knowledge and i was like Ooh, i want that i want to i want to find my slice of the pie my slice of the uh, the darkness that I can cut out, illuminate, and say, I figured this shit out. Interesting, because if you take that to its logical extreme, right, what happens if you're a kid and all those questions have been figured out? Do you not do it? I guess, yeah, the answer would be you can't do it, which is why I feel lucky in that I don't think that's it. I don't think that's possible. Because even as an eighth grader, and I thought it was physicist was the only way to figure that out, something I went through many years of existential crisis to finally understand is that even if we figured everything out in science, which I don't think we will, um, there's all other, there's whole other fields that are trying to uncover knowledge about the world, just maybe not in the physical sense, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, I think philosophers are doing a great job at trying to explore, you know, knowledge you know, psychiatrists, as much as I love to meme on them, like they're trying to, to understand, you know, maybe some idea of thought. And even if, and I'm, I'm kind of a belief that I think that even if we figured everything out about neuroscience and was able to map the brain and all that stuff, which might actually be impossible due to a lot of uh, problems with quantum mechanics. I think we talked about it one time. Um, I still think like there'll be places in like psychiatry and like the philosophy of thought or moral philosophy where humans will still have to work to try to understand ourselves and our place in the world. So you're right. The answer is if we figured out everything, 
these kids are just going to have to learn to deal with that, that everybody else knows that we know everything and they can't figure anything new out. Uh, but luckily, I, I don't think that that theoretical will ever come to be. Yeah, I, I believe it's actually proven in some cases, given like some very strict constraints on systems. You can always you can you can prove that there's an in, infinite recursion that happens that you always have to assume more and more information, but then you have to prove the information that you assumed, and you can do that ad infinitum, which is kind of beautiful. Interesting. I you'd have to point you'll have to point me to some of that because my favorite thing to point out why I think that'll always be true is Gödel's incompletist theorem. Yeah, started out as a peyote arithmetic proof, but I think maps onto just about any system. It's like any system of knowledge that you define will always be able to construct a question that can't be explained by the rules of the system. Yeah, so you need to introduce a new rule, but then to pr 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 produce a proof for that rule, you need to make more assumptions. And you, you need to make more systems, more assumptions, and there's always gonna be something that's outside of it. Which, yeah. to be fair, when Godel first proved this, uh, it actually just distraught every mathematician that ever existed. They just were depressed, it was like, Wait, so what do you mean? We're never going to be finished with making all the math that exists? And Godel went, no. <laughs> that's our Sisyphean, that's our Sisyphean task, man. Is yeah. mathematicians and physicists and scientists, we're going to be pushing that knowledge boulder up the hill. And even though it doesn't roll back down the hill every day, we're going to realize that hill never stops. There is no top. Well, I mean, there, there, there's like, there are two, I mean, there are many paths that you can go down with that kind of thinking, but the, I think the most important currently is, is sort of what are the practical, practical ramifications of yeah. some of this, right? If we can still do things that are practically useful, why not? Yeah, keep that's, going? Why that's why I'm still in science, despite this, you know, uh, and it's that like, I mean, I'll be real. I know I try to, to not suck physics off too much because I think there's a little bit too much worship of it in a non-healthy way by, by our society. But like, dude, what other form of thought, what other like system of exploration of, of knowledge has produced as much things as physics over the last, or sorry, physics science over the last 500 years. You know what I mean? Maybe art, but I get what you're saying. It's exactly, I mean, I love art. But in, especially in terms of like practical, like, you know, day-to-day -day improvements, um, I've, I've always been, you know, really thankful for and really impressed with science's ability to do stuff. I say that as somebody who is very much aware that when you usually, usually work in physics, you're trying to, to, come, to figure out knowledge about the world that is not obviously applicable to everyday life for a while, you know? It took people a really long time, you know, whatever it was, 50, 50 or so years to figure out why any of the quantum mechanics that we started learning about in the late, 18, the late 1800s was useful in any practical way. You know, I certainly agree, right? You can get caught up in working on some very theoretical toy model of something and then think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of out here and maybe it'll be used and you're hoping that it will be used. And yeah. I feel like one of the most interesting tools that I've seen kind of bridge the gap is isomorphism, right? It's saying I have a problem in some very distinctive field and I have this solution in some other field. Is there a transformation between this problem in this field and another problem in another field that's been solved so I can inherit all the machinery? 
So I think that is, that's, that's one of the most interesting places that you can conduct kind of uh, your exploration. That's why I love, that's why I love mathematicians more than anybody. I'm so thankful for all my mathematician friends. I, I can't dog on them at all because the amount of times physicists have been like, ah, something doesn't make sense with the physical world. And we just look for mathematicians and see what they've figured out that hasn't been used yet. And we're like, maybe this is useful. And then you drag it over into physics. You maybe tinker with it a little bit and you now have, you know, something that makes, oh my God, it actually explains everything. Quantum mechanics was famous for that. Or like all this mathematics had been made 50 years ago and everyone asked the, the mathematicians like, where's this ever applicable? And we're like, oh. <laughs> it just works, dude. Just <laughs> shut up. And physicists came in 50 years later and we're like, oh my God, you know, this like actually lets us do quantum mechanics, right? And we were like, hell yeah. Yeah. So and I'm it might like, be the same way for a, a toy physical model that you build, right? Oh, it, yeah. It might be useful for math. It might be useful for something else. I think there's like, though, there was actually a very famous part. So I, I said that we took the math that we took from the mathematicians for quantum mechanics actually there i can't remember who exactly there's a pretty famous physicist who was known and who had a bunch of papers in the mathematical fields in like the 30s and 40s because and i think i wish i wish i knew more about this i'm speaking a little bit out of my out of my ass right now but there was a lot of freeman dyson i can't remember but i just know that he made legitimate contributions to the mathematics world like in the pure theoretical mathematics world with models that he constructed for physics so he was like, he's like, I don't know, no math exists to do this. I think it makes sense. And then mathematics, people were like, oh, we can like actually, that is actually new and a whole new mathematical thing and we can take from it and, and expand on it. So well, I know, it goes, actually, I know it goes both ways. I think a little, you know, to give physicists our credit, it does go both ways. I, it's just felt like we take from them a lot more. That's why I'm thankful for them. I really am. Well, and the, I know that there exist specific programs like PhD programs that are uh, what is it called mathematical physics or some kind of applied math and physics and the whole premise is let's take something like the objects that arise in general relativity and then see what math interesting math emerges let's take them to their extremes where the physicists wouldn't care anymore and see what we can do like just as objects right I have a very good friend who's in one of those programs right now Uh, and I can't wait to see what kind of work he does what comes out of that because I, I agree, that's a fascinating realm of physics um, and a fascinating realm of science. Yeah, so, so I guess uh, here, how about we start talking about the realm of physics in which you live or actually where you are currently in your process of learning physics. Yeah. So yeah, I was a little bit worried about this part of the conversation because I listened, you know, there's so many interesting people in physics right now and I feel like I'm in such a, like early budding stage that I don't have a lot to put into it but I'm going to pause you there though right that's actually part of the intention behind why I'm talking to you and I'm not talking to uh what's his name Kip Thorne right it's I want I want to talk to the people who are like up and budding and developing who have these like ideas that may not even be founded well but they're still having them right this part of the process is lost like we know people who are very established and we can hear them speak ex post facto Right. I want, I want, yeah. I want to talk to you now and I want to talk to you 10 years from now and to see how that evolution actually happened. That would be awesome. All right. Well, so to, I guess to introduce myself an hour into this, 
Um, I'm Connor Arnoff, uh, and I've actually just finished up my first semester uh, doing my PhD in physics here at Texas Tech. Um, and so just like one of your past guests, Robert, uh, I plan to have my specialty be in some form of condensed matter or quantum materials, whichever, whichever word fits best. Um, but I, since I'm so early into my PhD, I actually don't have a specific, um, a specific realm uh, of research yet. I'm just taking classes and deciding on it. Um, okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I want to, I want to know first off how you got into the field, right? You, you hinted that you were interested since eighth grade, maybe earlier. So uh, what, where, what was your sort of path getting from eighth grade, I'm interested to, okay, I'm actually doing my PhD. Yeah, so I actually think I have one of the more concrete, you know, origin superhero stories for, uh, for why I specifically wanted to be a physicist. But like, but for some real quick uh, background, growing up, I was always very good at math. Uh, you know, I did all those little state school competitions for mathematics and for science, and I performed always really well in them. Um, it's just something that I think just came naturally. The way numbers worked made sense to me. Um, and then science was just cool. You know, we learned about volcanoes and plants that ate animals and like, you know, you'd get those science books and they'd just be filled with all these amazing, fantastical things. You'd go to science museums. Uh, there's a great one here in Lubbock. And, you know, there would just be like, you know, Rube Goldberg machines for miles. Uh, you could play on merry-go-rounds. I loved And I loved all that. But uh, those were all fun. But I thought that you just like learned about physics uh, or learned about science, just what other people did. And then finally in eighth grade, I had the worst teacher I think I've ever had. She was garbage. I won't go into much because she doesn't deserve it that much. But uh, thank God she was so horrible because multiple times she would come into class and just put in VHSs of famous scientists and let them talk. And I, one class she put in one about the discovery of the atom. And it was, you know, Higgs and... Um, Dirac and a bunch of these guys, or not Dirac, because Dirac was a little bit older, um, but it was these famous physicists talking about the discovery of like subatomic particles. Uh, and I was just like, oh my God, this is fantastic. And then at the end of the video, they're like, and then there's so much we just still don't understand that we could still learn, you know? And I was like, oh my God, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go learn more about as something and put it into these science books, into these science museums that I love uh, to get into. And I could have my name on a plaque, you know, at, at one of these places. Um, so, so I guess, how does that, how does that sit with uh, your classmates, right? At the time, right? Presumably not everybody feels this way. Not everybody sees that documentary and is like, holy crap, I'm going to be the guy that finishes that problem. No, no, I, I have a feeling none of them are like that, but I don't know. I, the best way that I can put it is I grew up weird. Like I've, I've always been, uh, you know, a little bit, you know, outside. As I said, I didn't understand other people that well. A lot of that was because I felt very different from a lot of classmates. I still love them and love these guys that 
it sounds like I'm gonna shit on them still friends with and still like this day but yeah I mean it was it was just something that spoke to me and I don't know I, I wasn't around a lot of other people that that it spoke to like that except for my for my family you know because my family's also always been you know very supportive of me doing stuff like science and uh they have always been um encouraging of me satiating that uh that thirst for knowledge you know my mom said that she would never lie to me so any questions I asked her about the world she would give her best scientific answer that she could both my parents you know being scientists at one point in their life both doctors in the medical field but scientists nonetheless um they never hid that from me and so uh I don't know how to really confide to to understand why someone like that affected me so much and not everybody else. And that's but fair. I think that's part of the beauty of the, the differences that we were talking about. Yeah, there you go. It's the differences in people. But pretty much from then on, it was like, I knew that I was going to do physics of some sort. And it was, you know, a little bit tumultuous. I was very bad at school. So despite, I think, being pretty good at figuring out some, a lot of these concepts, I was very bad about like staying regimented, getting work done. I failed classes. I failed multiple classes in high school because I just didn't stay organized and get homework done. You know, I had no problem taking tests and, and passing those, but my God, you got a whole class. If you got a whole class where the only grades in it were like homeworks and assignments, who, oh boy, man, it was going to be a little bit rough for me. Well, it's interesting because it seems like research academic research is more like doing homeworks than it is taking exams i know, I know which has scared me <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm i guess we'll talk on touch a little bit on the, like the relationship between that and how it's manifested itself now but you went so you went to school you went to to college afterwards i finally yep i got into college in physics um and there i just learned there it was an interesting thing because i finally had to learn you know, what kind of physics I wanted to go into. And, you know, of course, I talked all growing up, I learned about, you know, these subatomic particles. And, you know, I was looking into things like antimatter. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe I wanted to be a high energy physicist, just like every physicist wants to be at that point, because that's where all the, you know, really flashy, big name, famous physicists are, you know, technically, uh, you know, Higgs would have considered himself a high energy physicist. Uh, uh, Stephen Hawking probably would have as well, kind of astrology or astronomy too, but you get what I mean. Um, but I don't know. I felt the things I ended up being really interested in were the condensed matter, those quantum materials, uh, a little bit because I had a stint where, and I still might be interested in doing biophysics, which is condensed matter, but on squishy things. So... Um, I guess if I'm to kind of dig into it a bit more, uh, what is your take? What's your summary on condensed matter? Like what does condensed matter mean to you and why is it the most fascinating? So if listeners want to go listen to Rob's episode, Robert uh, gives, I think, a great definition. But to me, condensed matter really has been, I think, I, I think the word emergence is perfect. But what he means by that is it's taking these things that we know happen at a very small quantum level, these uh, characteristics that occur at the quantum level. And then how do those relate to macroscopic um, effects 
that those materials can have when interacting in the world, right? So Rob talked about how, you know, we know how these electrons can act when you fire, you know, lasers and lights at them, electrons at them, and then his, his work in condensed matter is firing a laser at something, which is kind of a macro thing. How does that interact at the micro level to cause electrons to go into a higher energy, uh, you know, energy state, decay back down and create phonons, you know, and that's all big macro state fire laser or something, you know, quantum, uh, quantum of how electrons interact back kind of into a macro sense uh, with, you know, phonons and how they, and how they affect materials. And condensed matter being such a broad field, it's, it's almost bad because it's like, some are going to be really focused on just those small quantum interactions, but in materials, some are going to be a little bit bigger at the macro state. Um, but it's, uh, it's definitely a lot of fun to me. Condensed matter is also where you get a little bit more of that classical, like, uh, scientist that like also gets to like build things and like make material contributions, um, you know, working, working with some material scientists who actually like will create little circuits, uh, you know, is always a really fun thing to do. Cause you know, I think, uh, you know, really tangential to the scientist is kind of the inventor and the engineer, you know, we also like a lot of physicists like tinkering with things and building little contraptions, uh, and, you know, doing little fun experiments. And to me, condensed matter was the most like that. I just want to reconcile one thing, though. You said you you were inspired by Higgs, maybe the likes of Dirac or, or or, or these other these other guys yeah. that work on like the the sexy high energy physics. So how did yeah. you go from this concept really driving you to okay, I'm going to do condensed matter? So probably something I skipped over that started happening a little bit late in high school, but in college is something we talked about earlier which is like why would you be doing physics you know like why would you be discovering these you know big things uh you know why are you trying to grasp at this fruit of forbidden knowledge and to be completely honest I actually came to a similar thing that you said which is I actually do like the practical effects in science and I do like and I just like the mechanics of doing these experiments uh, and being, you know, a scientist who gets to tinker with things. Um, and especially in something like biophysics, that's to me where I felt like, oh my God, this really is like an application of physics that has such direct, important um, effects on people's lives. I mean, I, as, as I mentioned earlier, both my parents are doctors and especially my mother, but actually my dad too, got into the profession because they loved like helping and understanding other people. And this was the best way to do it with their, you know, smart brains. Um, I don't think I'm, I was quite cut out for being a doctor specifically. Uh, I got a little taste of being a doctor for two weeks, helping my dad during a mission trip. It was a lot of fun, but I was like, I don't think this is quite for me. Uh, is standing there doing surgery for 12 hours a day. Um, but biophysics was something that was so personal to me because like I could talk to my mom about these things that doctors can't really do 
and work on. Can't do surgery on an individual cell, can you? Um, but physicists, and especially in the world of condensed matter, were equipped with ways to explore, you know, the mechanics of how our bodies work, but it's at a small quantum level. You know, how do you deliver a drug through a membrane? Uh, how do, you know, these protein motors actually run? Um, you know, how do proteins fold? Stuff like that. And like, to me, that's such a, you know, concrete way of understanding these small uh, systems in our bodies can really help us understand and fix, you know, problems plaguing humans, individual humans. So I guess I just want to like be a bit, bit more concrete here. So you speak with biophysics. So you speak of biophysics with a bit of like, you know, revere and it's like kind of nostalgic. Uh, were you working on a project in biophysics at any point? Um, not in biophysics specifically. I actually worked in bio, uh, in computational biology for a little bit with, uh, and during my undergrad, actually in the same lab as Alex Pan. Um, and I actually did work on a little bit of a project on my own while I was there that sadly, I did not bear any paper fruits because it was just, it was a tough problem that was a little bit more biophysics uh, focused, which was just on the energy spectrum of, um, of splitting, of splitting DNA, of splitting DNA strands. Could you uh, give me like a, a nice sort of tagline of what the project was and what kind of progress, I guess, what, what was the project and what were the questions? I'm kind of interested. So the project was um, when doing uh, DNA methylation testing, you at some point have to split, split DNA, copy it, uh, and split it again, copy it, split it again, copy it. Well, DNA, when you have bonds together, have a, some sort of energy, right? some sort of energy in the bonds that they have. And so to split it takes a certain amount of energy. Well, the idea is if you have two strands of DNA, but they have different sequences, those sequences inherently have different energies. And if it takes more energy to split one than split the other, uh, are you going to over-represent one strand of DNA? Are you gonna split it and create it more often than the one that takes more energy to do? Um, and specifically, we were worried that uh, the way methylation works is even if you split one thing, like split one strand, the way you, you construct the methyl group, actually this strand, once you've created a new DNA, has different energy than the other side of it. And so you actually sometimes will have mismatches in the coverage of a methyl group from one strand to the other which in theory they should always be equal because it's like it's one methyl group and you split it and you count the ones over here, you count the ones over here, they should be the same, but they end up not always being so. And I don't know, I, you know, the, uh, I did a lot of testing and tried to build a lot of programs to kind of prove this. It just didn't really end up working. Like I, I don't, and I can't really tell you why. Well, okay. So I want, I want to, I, okay. It didn't bear any fruits. That's fine. But I want to kind of get, dig into your thought process, right? So, okay. It makes sense to me, different energies, perhaps there's a different proportionality with the splitting, right? Maybe one group gets represented more. What, what how do you go from this question to I'm going to test it, right? Because presumably you're not in the wet lab with trays of DNA yeah. counting up how many strands you get, right? Yeah, of course. 
Um, I mean, so the way that the lucky thing about working in that is that we already had all the data there. The problem is, is that is not getting the correct data. It's, you know, parsing this insane amount of it that you have. So I knew that the first thing that I had to figure out was actually how do you calculate the energy of these of these new strands? Because the problem was is that it's there are you know programs that and easy ways to figure out a normal you know stranded DNA's energy, but the way that these um, the way the specific like splitting and constructing of DNA happens in um, in PCR, which was the uh, which is how you, uh, which is how you split and, and multiply these DNA for sequencing. Um, Just to be clear, a, uh, PCR is this split copy, split copy, split copy, yeah. right? Yes. Okay. Um, it's yeah, it's the split. It's the split copy and count. I guess I should also say this is like this is also when you're counting the certain sequences, and so you start sequencing the DNA. Um, but there's, you know, weird ways that happen. So pretty much my job and what I was actually, <laughs> I, I think, pretty bad at was I had to figure out a way of like quickly calculating these millions of sequences of DNA and their energy and figuring out accurately, like, yes, this is the energy of this strand. This is the, you know, energy of this strand and then calculating them and looking at them. Um, and so you wanted to calculate the energy of this strand and then also count how often you covered it, how often the PCR was able to look at it and, you know, accurately, like, uh, accurately sequence that little strand. And then the energy of this strand and how many times it was accurately picked up by PCR uh, and put into the data. Um, and then compare the two and be like, did more or less energy mean this one got counted more or less? Uh, versus this other strand, but it, you had to do that for literally millions and millions of DNA sequences. Um, and your thing. And your so, expectation was that it is somehow in proportion, right? There, there isn't an equal yeah. representation. Yeah, I thought it. And the thing, and this is what's so so soul crushing sometimes about physics is that, like, to me. You know, my, you know, my PI was one who kind of pointed it out at first where she had an expectation for this. She's like, it makes sense, doesn't it? And then I went home and like did a little bit of the math. You know, I thought about it. I'm like, it makes so much sense that this would happen in my mind. And so, and then to not be able to prove it is a little bit tough, you know. It's why I think in the end, I wasn't fit out for computational biology specifically. And I'll be careful to go into that because... It's just like, it felt like I was just parsing through this big data, trying to prove my point, uh, which I don't think is the way I want to do physics. You know, I really want to be doing experiments and understanding what comes out of them, not pretty much taking experiments that have already been done and trying to parse this insane amounts of data to try to pull meaning from it. Um, it, it just felt, it, it felt like I was going out of my way to almost create something that to me obviously wasn't there. But then that also meant I spent three months doing this project that bore no fruit, which uh, definitely was kind of, which was definitely a letdown. And that's just, tough. Just from my experience and my experience being the experience of those who I know who are doing PhDs, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff happens all the time, right? 
like uh, Rob, not during that conversation, but after the fact, told me that at one point his PI came up to him, and this is after having collected data and processed the data for maybe a year, said, oh, I think this invalidates what you just worked on. And there's a bit of a panic, right? Because you're like, I need to get finished. I need to still maintain my requirements. But at, at the deepest levels, I thought I was understanding what was happening. Yeah. Right. You can get lost in the, in the, in the minutia and then have nothing to sort of yield. Yeah. And that's definitely, that was definitely a big learning experience was doing that. But, um, so, but yeah, that's what I did a lot of research in as an undergrad. Uh, but, and I'm still, and I'm very happy for that experience because that PI gave us a lot of responsibility and a lot of freedom. And so I feel like I learned a lot very quickly about what it takes to be a scientist. And I will say, while that one, you know, that one little part was crushing, I actually very much enjoyed having, you know, that power, that freedom to like be running and trying to, uh, to carry out these, these calculations and experiment, experiments. Well, so, so just, just based off of like hearing the inflection in your voice in the story, there was something kind of cool about someone coming to you with a problem and saying, okay, go figure this out. And you were like, you know what? That makes sense. I'm going to spin on this. Now, yeah. I, I guess I want to kind of flip it, right? You've, you've had the opportunity to take physics classes, presumably for almost like six years now at the collegiate level. Yes. So have there been any instances where you learned something and maybe it's not completely finished and you're just like, hmm, I have a way that I could fix this and I want to go do it? Yes and no. Um, to me, one of the big ones, and it's why I, I got drawn back into condensed matter, and I'm still to this day conflicted, and I can, we can follow up in a couple months, and I can tell you whether I end up in biophysics or in condensed matter. They're both condensed matter in the end, so I don't, so I don't think it's that big deal. Um, but one of the reasons I chose, chose the institution I did is I got really into uh, superconducting qubits, where people are trying to build the qubits for supercomputers. And like, I actually kind of, I mean, it was, I mean, it's high level physics that I still am not a hundred percent, you know, I can't, I don't think I hundred percent understand it, but come on, man, it's, it's physics. I, I, I almost don't trust anybody that says they do understand it a hundred percent. But I don't know, it made a lot of sense to me, but then there were also these parts of it that apparently are just not, are, are not figured out yet which is how to create these co you know, really good coherent states for supercomputing qubits. And All right. I want I want to pause, right? I got really into reading about those. So so this is really cool. It's kind of speaks to me because one of the I mean one of the things I was thinking about when I was in the physics train was I'm going to go work on quantum computation, right? It's just yep. going it's going to inevitably change the way we live and see the world. So I want you to give me your best sort of explanation of, so what is, what is a qubit? But before that, I want you to sort of root it in what current computation is and how it would be different. Yeah, so I actually hopefully can, hopefully nobody strangles me in the actual uh, computational, the quantum computational world, because it's definitely gonna be off the cuff for somebody who never really looked at that. Um, but a qubit is a very cute name that pretty much just means a quantum bit. So in the same way that your computer has all these bits that can store information. 
And of course, in a computer, we all know the famous pictures from back in the what 50s, where bits were light bulbs, and they literally have an on and an off, right? And that's, that's how you construct a computer, is that you have a piece of information that's either on or off, zero or one. Um, and then you string all these together, right? And you can create computers. A qubit is trying to use a quantum state uh, as your light bulb to be on or off. But famously, uh, a lot of these states can be a little bit more complicated than just on or off, meaning they can store more info than just zero or one, right? So if you think about the spin, you know, the spin of an electron, spin of an electron can have, I think technically six degrees of freedom that you can measure it in. Um, and there's a couple other different ways than just those raw directions, but a cube, a quantum a qubit is attempting to capture that quantum state inside a little device where you can, where it can be in preferably, you know, we'll start with two states, but at two or more states, and then we can measure that state that it's in to get the information out. So you can think of it as building a little contraption where we trap a little electron or a little particle in there uh, and it can store energy for us or it can store information for us by being in a certain orientation, whether that's its energy level, the phase, the phase factor that the, that the electron spin is pointed in. There's a bunch of different, you know, theories of uh, ways you can construct qubits. People have started constructing them even now in a bunch of different ways, but we want to be able to store those quantum states in a way that will, they will stay in the state that we want them to, and then we can read them and maybe store new information in them. So it's building pretty much those. It's building quantum light bulbs <laughs> to build computers. So but, uh, just for my clarity then, Historically, the reason why we were working with on and off is because it's easy to turn something on and something off. But now we have the means to turn something a little bit on, a little bit more on, a little bit like what, I mean, this is not necessarily what's exactly happening, but you have more ways to turn it on than just completely on. Not exactly, not exactly, because I'm not talking about degrees of turning yeah. it on. I, it's your... I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually kind of fight back on this and be a little bit like, no. It's not just that it's like you turn it a little bit more on, a little bit more on. It's, it's that specifically, if you think of like on off, those are only two options. But what if we could have like on off, left, right, up, down? Got it. You know, those were all positions a light bulb could be in. Got it. That's what we're saying is that quantum, these quantum systems can be that. Can, they can have more than literally on off. And so they just inherently have more info to them. But I, I guess you could you could model it like that. You could model, you know, a dimness of a light bulb, which would actually be really interesting. Um, yeah, no, it's it's actually a great question because now I'm thinking about uh, what that would mean if you just built even a classical computer. Right, because um, I'm just saying you gate them, right? You have you have you're binning a continuous function or some continuous stream. And yeah. this range or this, and this range or this, and this range yeah. or this, and you go from a bit to a something base six, right? Yes. Yeah. And, but it's still very much quantized. Like, right. as in, and by quantized, I mean, it has definite, like, discrete values. It's not continuous. Right. Yeah. But so those, and that is, and to me, that's also really cool. And 
and supercomputing, of course, has been really big. It's had a big explosion in the physics field recently. And so that would be, that was something that I remember studying in a class and then being like, wow, well, I want to learn about this. And so I went and read a bunch about it. Um, but I don't, I don't know if that fully fits into, into your, you know, oh, I had an idea though, you know, like I don't, cause I, that's the problem I've had so far with physics is that like, we're at a point in physics where I feel like you have to dedicate yourself so hard to like these, you know, certain fields. I, I just haven't had a, I haven't had that point yet where I learned about something and I feel like I have what I'm going to call a novel insight, meaning, uh, you know, a unique insight that I make that nobody else has that I, you know, wanted to pursue, you know, and I'm hoping one of those days it'll come to that. But that's one of those existential fears as a scientist, right? Is that yeah. what if you never really have an important one of those? Yeah, and uh, I think that's important because something that you mentioned explicitly here was that nobody else has ever had, right? I'm sure there are yeah. insights that other people have had, very much like your biophysics example, where maybe they thought of it and they haven't proven it. <laughs> so yeah. do, do you somehow value that a little bit less because it's not the one, you're not the one coming up with the actual statement? So no, I actually don't mostly cause like, I don't, but it's also like, as I, in the practice of physics, I very, I don't think you, you have that every so often. And I say novel insight, it's like, it's the one that you have. Let's be real. Science has always been, and it continues even more so to be a collaborative effort. So a lot of these quote unquote novel insights that people are going to make are most likely going to be you know, you talking it out with your group members, with other colleagues, like, you know, there, there almost has to be that Hegelian dialectic between two people, you know, where you bounce ideas off of them, they respond and ideas off of you. And finally, you know, it goes up that spiral and you finally get to that novel idea that you have. The real, you know, the real thing that makes it yours is then the hundreds of hours of work you put in constructing the experiment, isolating the variables, carrying out the experiment to prove, uh, you know, this thought that you had, you know, so doing, I, I doing actual it. science. Yeah, I agree. I want to pause this here because it's interesting, right? I want to, I want to really contrast this with what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. We're talking about this very collaborative egalitarian system whereby an idea can sort of bounce between people and that's what really allows it to transform. Now that consolidated with the thing that we were talking about in the very beginning. So I want to yeah. see your thoughts about that now that we're kind of have these two together. You see what, so in the very beginning, do you mean like the whole empathy thing, like understand yes. others? Yes. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's super, it, so I'm going to gather my thoughts for a second here. To me, they are so intertwined, it's not even funny. And that understanding and coming to that understanding and not being so selfish in my view of, of both science and an understanding other people, I think was super important for my development. And I encourage other people to think in a very similar way, right? Um, just like in coming to understanding yourself, you know, coming to understand the physical world around us in science really is going to take you listening to other people. Um, you, uh, and we've always done that. I mean, you came to your understanding of the physical world by reading these textbooks, by, by learning the words of Shankar and Jackson, 
you know, they helped construct your worldview. Why would you not take that a little bit of a step further and maybe start listening to your colleagues on the things that, that they believe to be true? And you don't even need to, to fully buy into it. But how, I mean, how can you not then go listen to other people, their take on physics, incorporate that into your, into your own in the same way that you construct your own personal identity in that way? where sure you have your own, you know, self-identity and then, but then you share that with other people, you get their feedback, their view of you. Um, and then you incorporate it into the, into the, uh, into your own and kind of construct a new understanding of yourself. I think that they're completely intertwined. Um, and I think you kind of have to think of the world that way. Um, right. And I think that's sort of the silver lining for the, the caricature of the physicist that we were talking about in the beginning, right? It's the, that caricature more and more can no longer exist because you have to talk to other people. The, the, the body of information is too large for you as an individual to parse through and make something new. You could parse through it and that could be your objective. Right? I totally agree. And I, and I think, and I wish, you know, I wish I could have this conversation with every young kid who wants to be a scientist or a mathematician growing up, because, you know, and I might be speaking out of line here, and I really don't mean this in any mean way, but let's be real. The science does attract a lot of these, I mean, what I'm going to call, you know, these weird, these almost autistic kids, you know, I feel like I'm in that same box. I, you know, I, I think I've come to terms with that the last couple of years. It's like, I was, kind of weird and autistic. I still kind of am. Um, and luckily, I feel like I got lucky with, I had a lot of loving people around me who, some of them in nice ways, some of them in others, uh, less nice ways, pointed that out to me, was like, you need to be able to sort this out. Because like inherently, you know, those like those kids like me and like I think a lot of people in physics, like literally by definition, inherently have a tough time doing that but it's so important and it'll make your professional life so much better. It'll make your personal life so much better. Your understanding of the world so much better if you can do that. Um, and that's why I, I tend to, like I said earlier in this conversation, I try to have a lot of empathy when I hear stories about kids who are awkward or who come across as like, you know, pompous or mean, you know, but you can obviously tell they're doing it on accident because they just don't understand other people. You know, um, and I think that's very important. It's also why art's been super important to me, despite being the physicist who sits, you know, in a room and does math. You know, you hear a lot of hate from scientists into the onto the humanities and into art. But like, I cannot tell you how much art, specifically music and then movies, were so important to me learning this. Because, god damn, if I didn't learn this, it my life would have been so much worse. Oh my God. I have, I have two notes, right? So the first one is really talking about the thing that you said with, with the, this is a message to, to those people. Like you want to, you want to sit down with the, some of them and tell them, Hey, like it's, it's okay. Right. This is, this is like, this is not unreal. Like, it's not absurd. This is, this is the way it is and we can work with it. We're going to yeah. work on it. I, I like that. I think that's part of why I'm talking to you at this particular stage. Right. Maybe you're not like four years deep in a research lab, but there's a beauty in figuring out how your mind is working right now. Because I feel like disproportionately the, the, the media that we consume specifically for those physicists even is when they've made it. 
right? They've yeah. already gone through the trouble of establishing who they are and they can certainly and confidently talk about the things that they've done. But I want it the other way. I want the uncertainty in thinking about where I'm headed because that's way more real. That's way more relatable. I and agree. I think not only does it get more people excited because they say, oh my God, that's me, right? But it also kind of gives more of a voice to the people, like more of a voice to what physics and science is actually like, where it's this collaborative effort. Just because yeah. Feynman was this tank of a dude doesn't mean that that's what physics is like. And if that's what you're exposed to when you're like six, seven years old and super impressionable, and that's your motivation, then you're inherently, in my, in my opinion, kind of limiting yourself because you're, you're saying, oh, I want to be this guy who's like just sitting on a chair thinking about these ideas and doing it on my own, right? I, I'm not saying Feynman preaches this. I'm just saying that it's easy to yeah. look at Feynman and think that I want to be that singular thing. I want to be yeah. that. I want to be Newton. I want to be Gauss, whatever it is. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you that that's the way people look. And you probably know kids like that uh, all growing up. I was that kid at one point growing up. I know I was, um, which is, you know, and we've brought up Feynman a lot, mostly because, you know, he's a great scientist and maybe my favorite. He was amazing because he did preach the opposite. But it's just like when you're a kid, you don't listen to that kind of stuff, you know? Exactly. I, he actively preached the opposite. Um, sadly, there are a lot of other physicists who don't. Uh, you know, Richard uh, uh, Hawkins is a great example of one that never that preached kind of the, uh, you know, solo savant physicist kind of aesthetic in life. And, act and he actively kind of put down other physicists that he disagreed with. Uh, in a very public way. So as much as, I mean, how can you not love Hawking, Hawkins in his work? He, I, I think he contributed a little bit to the inhumanity of physicists sometimes with that kind of attitude. You know, same with, I think Neil deGrasse Tyson does it horribly, or I think he, he uh, portrays the same thing because he refuses to have empathy and understanding for people who don't understand physics. Um, but then there are some great physicists who do it. I think Michu Kaku has always done a great job as a pop scientist uh, as of portraying, you know, the importance of understanding and uh, the humanity of it. But you, I actually weirdly think Feynman is probably the best at it. You know, you can read his letters, his letters to his grad students where he talks about ideas like this that, man, every physicist should read. <laughs> they really should. Yeah, I think... Um... This kind of touches on something that's a bit more sort of, it's like a more of a meta comment, but it, it has to do with uh, dogmatism, right? I feel like one of the things that I get about Feynman is how he, he broke some of the dogmatic like, yes. proceedings in science. Yes, right? he did. He and, was and, so punk. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I believe that you can succeed in an, a very dogmatic environment, which clearly people do. But I think that there is some type of personality and it might be the personality that I am, maybe I'm seeing in you, right? That doesn't want to, to even deal with those kinds of constraints. No, not at all. I, no, not at all. I, I, that is one of the best compliments I feel like I've ever gotten. I'm almost at a loss for words. Cause you're right. I mean, the fact that Feynman was so punk about everything in the way he approached science uh, is super inspirational, man. You know, he really did what he wanted. He took, yeah. he, he took 10 years off of research at one point because he's like, I just want to teach classes, man. 
There you go. Yeah. I mean, I, there's something to it, right? Uh, the, an inter- I mean, there's some interesting things from Feynman that I've personally really enjoyed. One of them is he, he has some, like somebody asked him, you know, what makes you special, Mr. Feynman? And he's like, nothing. I just got interested early enough and I did it and I liked it and I worked hard. And I'm like, yeah. yes, right on. And then the other thing was, it's, it's a quote and I'm still, I'm still toying around with this one. It, it's interesting. He says, that which I cannot create, I do not understand. It's interesting. It's interesting to toy around with what that even means. Yeah. Right. It's just that, very kind of, that kind of provocation from him is, is, is super important because it takes someone like me who's not, I'm not doing theoretical physics, but it's applicable to me, right? He's giving me practical advice on how to sort of question and, and per- proceed in, in, in inquiry. I should not take an interface for granted because I understand how the interface operates with whatever I'm trying to do. Right. Just because I can drive a car doesn't mean I understand the inner workings of a car. And it's yeah. very easy when you're doing actual like inquiry to, to assume that because I know how it interfaces, I know how it works. Yeah. And I think the area in which science really limits itself is mm-hmm. exactly that is taking those interfaces for granted, taking the mech, the, the um, procedures for granted. Because it's when you really question those procedures and a very extreme example of this is Einstein, right? It very much questioning the dogma <laughs> yeah. and saying, okay, this is where, where the, this is where the contention is, is like all the way up here in the stratosphere, maybe the sixth floor, but I want to go down to like the basement, the basement that says the speed of light is constant in all reference frames. Like what's that about? <laughs> yeah. No, I, uh, I super agree with this mostly because I I get really worried about this dogma and it's mostly, you know, my friendship with a lot of philosophers that really brought this to my attention where it's like, I wish it was more okay to question those dogmas, but not come across like you're actively saying those dogmas are all wrong. And it feels like the way that you have to present yourself in the science world is you have to do that. And that makes me very sad because I don't think you have to like, I, if somebody comes to me and is like quantum field theory works really well and it fits our, and it fits our understanding, you know, currently of quantum mechanics and, uh, and the complete model of the universe, but I, you know, and it works, you know, we should take this as dogma. We should work on quantum, you know, quantum field theory. I think, and you, you can, at least with quantum field theory, you should be able to question it, be like, yeah, okay, really, does quantum field theory get everything right? Does it real, is it really the best, you know, most elegant explanation for all this? And the answer is it might not be. It probably isn't, let's be real. You know, the half-life of science is what, like 90 years or something like that. Well, We're gonna, this- somebody will figure out that it's wrong, but I wish it would be okay to be, to question quantum field theory, but then every so often when you need it, just be like, okay, maybe I will, you know, buy into quantum field theory for this one experiment, this one paper that I'm writing, because it feels like you can't do that. And that makes me very sad. Okay. So, so yeah, this, this is exactly the thing that I, I'm like really, really getting at here is uh, there's, there's a fine line. There's a, there's a balance, right? I can't have as a, a, a theoretical physicist, a bunch of randos coming to me being like, I don't believe the speed of light is constant or like, I don't believe quantum field theory works. Yeah. Right. So I can yeah. understand why there's like a resistance to it. Right. But I mean, there has to be a further dialogue. And I feel like the room for that dialogue is very important. The dialogue says, I don't think quantum theory is quite correct, 
And here's yeah, why. Yeah. I think there has to be the, the, the conjunction because at, at face value, there's no, there's no value in you telling me something's wrong if you're not proposing an alternative, right? Yes. And yes. Man, Mo, I could do another two-hour podcast about this specifically. I, I love this topic. Um, so to go on exactly what you just said there, you're right. Um, I think one of the reasons why we have this dogma in science is that we kind that science throughout its history has kind of had to stand in consensus if it wants anybody to even kind of listen, right? You know, to to bring it into modern, you know, their modern day and our modern politics. Man, dude, do you know how much the consensus on things like wearing a mask will stop viruses from spreading as fast? Or the fact that humans have caused global warming over the last hundred years to skyrocket. Those are a consensus. Those are so much a consensus in science, right? And people still will not believe you if it stands, you know, in contention with their politics, right? And this has been the same throughout the history of, uh, you know, of really when scientism popped up in the West. There's been a history of this where every so often if, if physics accidentally brushes up against the politics of a lot of people in power, it gets attacked. But that's a problem because the way they combat it is that scientists push for this consensus, this dogma. And while that helps us in the field of, of society and in politics and stuff like that, I think it so hurts us in, in science. Because again, going away from those things which do have scientific consensus, you know, how do we go to these, you know, how can you go to these lay people and be like, hey, we should do more research into string theory, even though only about 50% of physicists actually think string theory is the correct interpretation of the world. Like, like nobody's going to listen to you then if you don't bring them concrete, this is the way the world is. And it's a problem. And it's the reason for that that problem that science kind of dug itself is that science promised everybody concrete truth. This is the way the world works. Um, right. And I think the trend, just to kind of continue on this thread, yeah, the, one of the reasons why I think that the pattern that you're saying emerges is because of specialization, right? There, yeah. Just by virtue of specializing, you have to develop jargon to communicate effectively. I can't, every time I talk about uh, something in some deep concept in general relativity, I can't have to, I can't describe it to you in complete detail ever again, right? Because it's yeah. going to take too long to just talk. So jargon is a necessary byproduct of specialization. And if you get so far down the road that you can't really effectively communicate to the general public, th there's a, there's yeah. a barrier. And I think that barrier is the cause for a lot of problems. And I feel like it is not the sexy thing to do to, to, to bring down those barriers. And that's, that's where I think I want to come in, right? Because I, I like kind of going down rabbit holes. I like learning jargon and learning what people are working on. And I still hold that even if you are so far down that path, you can communicate effectively. Maybe it's through this kind of discourse, right? Because at the heart of it, yeah. you're, you're thrilled. You're feeling the same things that I'm feeling if I'm a construction worker. Or, or whatever it is, right? It, the emotion is the same. Yeah. You're just working on something different. And I just want that kind of humanity yeah. brought between totally. people. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree. It's, and, and especially if we can get past that, I think we can get back to, to being better scientists. 
to draw this back to what you know my original problem is there's a lot of times where I think there's a little bit of a taboo if you say something like oh I don't think that this is true when you're talking about something that's taken as a given in the science world um I think maybe you know my favorite one to bring up because I think it's probably so so definitely not figured out yet interpretation of quantum mechanics yeah so sorry did i robot did i robot out there at all or are we good uh you robot it out a little bit but we're good um so just just to go back one of the so, things that's still contentious so to me is our interpretation of quantum mechanics is that this copenhagen uh, interpretation the multi-worlds interpretation which is everyone's favorite little sexy one you know all the multiple universes mm -hmm. Or is it this, or is there some other way to construct a universal wave function that, you know, the hidden variables uh, interpretation? And for the most part, Copenhagen is most accepted. You know, it's, the, it's that idea that quantum mechanics has this randomness to it, that the wave function is a probability distribution. And when you measure, you're just, you're picking a random, a random occurrence out of the universe and then the other two try to fix this who to even bring up the other ones my my favorite one that happened is uh texas tech actually gave the stage to a guy who believed in this hidden variables you know kind of thing pretty much it's uh, the idea the idea for this last interpretation of quantum mechanics is that there's these guiding wave lines where there's a wave function that guides these wave functions into the actual choices that they make. It's no, it's not, it's not random. Um, it's a really cool, it's a really cool interpretation. I'm not sure I agree that it's real either, but I, my quantum teacher, when it came to questions, kind of like attacked the guy with a lot of antagonism over, over it, you know? And is and the questions my professor, my quantum professor was asking were legitimate. You know, the fact that, this last, this last one with hidden variables, it really breaks, um, it really breaks locality, which is a big thing, you know, which is a big loss, right? The fact that, uh, you know, something can exist over all spaces and doesn't have an actual just like position, or at least a, a, at least a close position is kind of really stupid. Like, I agree, it's also kind of crazy to think that, but to like, antagonize this guy in front of a, an audience just for believing in this kind of just felt it sat wrong with me because it's like that's just not the way scientists could be especially because let's be real I mean the Copenhagen this is metaphysics we're talking about there's no proof for any of these three it really is just kind of your gut feeling of what feels the most right to you about the world and sure you can write very long philosophical papers and many people have about their defenses for one of the three systems but like to like outright antagonize somebody over this really felt wrong. And that's just one example. Um, well, it, it's interesting to me why your professor would even go then if that was his position to begin with. I, I mean, yeah, a little bit because it's just kind of expected of professors to go to colloquiums is probably a little bit, but you're right. I mean, he probably went there to just like in a weird way, kind of laugh at the gesture up on stage 
dancing and parading around this idea that's just so ridiculous. How could anybody think that? And the thing that sucks is that it's like, honestly, my quantum professor is most likely right. I think that this interpretation isn't fully fleshed out. I don't think it's as strong either. But like, why would you even approach it like that if you're going to be a scientist, you know? And I wish it was more okay to approach it like kind of like I am, where you you can read into it, you can think about it. Maybe if you even have a, uh, <laughs> this is going to sound kind of horrible, but maybe you have a, uh, like a proof, not a proof, or you have an insight into that field that might advance it and you don't even believe in it. Uh, like why is it not accepted and okay and healthy to just do that because it, it happens I mean there, I know I know string theorists who do that all the time I, I've met I met a string theorist who who said yeah I work in string theory I don't think it's actually like a good physical representation of the art of the world you know I'm like why do you do it then he's like well it, it's great math he's like he actually it's actually kind of like the the mathematical physics guys he's like I actually don't care if it is a good interpretation of the physics of our world because interesting math pops out of it. And that's it. And that's cool. It's like, see, that's physics that I love. That's science that I love. It's just being open to these ideas that might not be super, that might not be real, might not be supported very well, but being open to them just because you might learn something from them. And then in, in the million and one shot, they might actually be the correct interpretation of the world. Yeah. So I think there, there's like a lot to unpack there. One of the main things that I sort of take from this is that when you make that kind of a statement, right, you got to make sure your audience is selected carefully, right? You, you don't problem. want to take everybody who's going to agree with you because then there's no value, right? You want to, you want to sort of have the right horizon of people, where there will, people, there will be people who disagree with you, but they're not going to vehemently disagree with you on principle. It's going to be an actual conversation. Yes. The point is to start conversations. So it's up to you to know your audience, really. And I do, and I wish that was more accepted. And, I, and again, I want to be covering my tracks. I understand why a lot of scientists aren't, aren't like that. Because, I mean, we're talking about a field where, where if you, like, if you, espouse that you know philosophy for the way science should be done have you opened yourself up to having to listen to flat earthers talk about holy rays that guide our gyroscopes and that's why uh we think the world is round when it's actually flat like no like uh, i don't think you do but that's the worry a lot of us physicists have is that it's like if we open ourselves up to these like what I'm going to call small crackpot loony ideas that actually might have some weight. Are you opening the door for every crackpot loony to demand an audience and a consideration from us? Cause exactly. We really don't want that. We already struggle with that. I don't. <laughs> exactly. But there's also something implicit in that, right? There, there's, there's, there's not enough time. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a physicist. Presumably I have a bunch of shit to do and I don't have the time of day to even be here. And I'm, be, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my service by being here already. Right. Yeah. So when I'm here, I want to hear something that's going to be right on the edge of something that I don't know. Yeah. Not, not questioning something that most people already agree on. <laughs> so, yep. Yeah, which is why I'm requesting the very nuanced, the very almost Buddhist, you know, request of, I'm not saying that we need to open the door to all of this, 
exactly. It's just I want to push that line <laughs> just a little bit further. Yeah. I want to push that line of accepted things to talk about and to think about just a little bit further. Well, here, here I challenge you then, right? So you, you're just starting your PhD. You finished your first semester. Uh, how are you going to uh, incorporate that mentality, that belief into your, uh, into your, uh, your, your path, I guess? So sadly, because I think I ended up choosing something like condensed matter, I myself am not going to be either exploring or really even platforming these controversial physics takes. But, and I, and I will already, and I've already started doing this, I think, is that I want to create a culture. I want to push for a culture that is okay with it. I want to invite, you know, these guys, uh, you know, I want to invite these multi-world meta, uh, metaphysics people to talks to give and to expose people to them and be like, this is an okay thing to think and talk about. Um, I wish I knew something a little bit more about other contentious parts of physics, because I think I'm honing down on this one that's, you know, a little bit, you know, a little bit harped on too much. Um, but I want to create that, that kind of atmosphere and that kind of uh, community that's okay with doing that. That's the most, I feel like that's the best that I can do. And it, and it also starts with taking down the elitism of science, because man, we could talk about that as well, where there still is very much this elitism to science, uh, and especially to physics, man. Like, let's be real. I, you know, I was praising all the mathematicians, but science, uh, physicists love to to shit on, you know, biologists. They love to shit on the humanities and, uh, and social sciences. I would and, argue and it's not the good ones that are doing the shitting. You're right, it's not. I will, I'm, I'm gonna admit to something. And that is like, I have those thoughts all the time too though. And, and to me, it comes, you know, and I think I'm, I'm uh, justified in thinking those things sometimes about some of these sciences because it feels like they're spoiling what the word science means and the weight that it has. Um, I especially feel this way about places like economics and social sciences where they're doing great work and great thought. It's just not quite really science, but the same word gets tacked onto it. And so it carries the same weight. Um, Let's talk about it then. So what is your, I mean, what is your definition then of science and how do they, how do they violate this? Yeah. So science, and so this is the problem with it, is that science really is a, um, is a, is a method of like thinking and exploration. And what it to me it is, is it is uh, defining a problem, setting up uh, experiments or thoughts that isolate the variable, the variable that you're interested in, and then testing that isolated variable and all the other controlled variables around it um, in as many ways as possible to where you asymptotically approach what I'm going to call truth. Um, that's the best way that I can define it in the most broad sense, which does open it up to all these other applications. The problem is, is the ability of those fields to uh, effectively isolate um, certain variables physics because all we are doing is talking about the way the world is is a lot easier to do that and it's why you hear you know when people talk about physics it's so niche and so specific 
right? You know, Robert's talking about fire, you know, a single material firing, you know, electrons, you know, at certain materials to create phonons. And it's these very specific things. It's also why it's sometimes hard to talk about how it's applicable to everyday life. It's like, I don't know yet. We're talking about this very one specific thing. And that's just something you can't do, especially if you're doing like macro social sciences. You know what I mean? Like, what the hell is intelligence? But I have to read a paper of a guy trying to mathematically define what intelligence means and then present it in a scientific way. Like, did you really isolate what intelligence is? No, he probably didn't because it's literally physically impossible. Right, but I I think it... That's maybe not the intention, right? It's kind of like the... Right, it's not. When should you... Just because you can't live to the standard, right? Whatever your standard you're defining doesn't mean you should stop. You're right, which is why... Which is what is so hard about this. And it's why... It's why I'm trying to admit that I have this pretentious, you know, this, uh, this pretension around, like, especially physics. But I'm also trying to say that we should get rid of it a little bit. Because you're right. Even though I don't think that especially fields like social science and economics can live up to the rigor of scientific proof that, you know, place that you get in places like um, chemistry and physics and, you know, math. Math does a lot less science, but they might even do better than we do. Um, It's still very important for them to do it. And the method of scientific thinking can be very helpful in those fields because even in those fields even if you can't do it you should still try to be you know uh isolating variables controlling controlling for outside factors to really try to approach you know these truths about the world but it's also like i mean we also have to accept and i wish people would be more comfortable with this and just saying that those are two different things they're two different forms of science and they hold two different uh, you know, um, standard of proof or weight of proof, you know, the weight of truth. Um, and so lost a little bit in where we were going with that. No, I mean, mostly it was just, just to get your sense on, on, uh, yeah. And I know that, and I, I feel bad because I know that that comes across as almost mean. Um, right. I, I'm going to say, I, I don't personally think that there should be that distinction and because it, it, in my opinion, so there, there's this probably this sort of conceptual idea of science, but I think also in some sense, it's an ideal, right? Yeah. We're trying to strive for something. And I think by, by virtue of the separation, you, you, you're, you're somehow saying we can't strive for the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And And I think there, there, and it goes back to my sort of beliefs in, you know, using isomorphism, using these things that are seemingly disparate and then connecting them, right? You'd be surprised that, I mean, perhaps it turns out that everything is a physical system, even these abstract concepts, they're physical systems and we can figure out some laws that govern them, right? I, I don't know that for sure. It's probably, I mean, we can't even talk how about very physicalist. How very physicalist of you, Mo. I mean, whatever. I, I mean, I'm just trying to make, I'm just saying, I mean, in theory, it's possible, right? There's a lot of very smart people who are physicalists. I I think you're good. You're good crowds there. Right. But Uh, it's just, it's just, uh, I I don't want to undermine it because I think it's, it's wonderful that that 
line of inquiry is being pursued, right? Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I'm personally also just going to say that I haven't thought very critically even about what it means to say something is a science, right? Yeah. Right. The, I mean, your definition kind of fits with my intuition, but I don't know if it's all encompassing. Maybe it's somehow limiting. I just haven't put the work in to figure that out. Exactly. And this is what I wish all scientists, not just physicists, but anybody who goes into some form of uh, science, especially a lot of the, I think especially social sciences uh, should really care about this. And that is they should study a little bit of the philosophy of science and, or, and epistemology. Because I think that that would, I feel like people should have, um, people should have that view. Or I hate that I'm that I can't remember this word. Uh, I have a problem where I forget, I forget words every so often. I can't find them, even though I know they're in my vocabulary. Yeah, I I found it. People should have that perspective on their fields because it was something that was I think was super important for me. You know, figuring out the, the limits of physics was super important. And I have a feeling people don't really understand the limits of their fields a lot of times. Um, and especially as something as controversial as like, you know, psychiatry, you know, psychology or social sciences or especially something like economics. My God, um, a lot of economics people that I talk to are actually very like painfully aware of the limits of their field uh, and the perspective that their field can actually give. And those are very smart ones and they do great work because they're always trying to contextualize that. Uh, sadly, I don't think a lot of people, some people in that field and specifically more people outside of like economics really understand that. They're looked at in a weird way. Economics are actually like where every scientist wishes they could be, where everyone really does look at them as like, dogmatic oh they're amazing <laughs> you know they <laughs> i think this is where i will i will go to your point about philosophy and tout tout philosophy a bit right it's it is the overlooked grand great granddad of all of science right yes and, it is and, I, love, uh, I love philosophy i really do it, it's laughed at i think not by everybody yeah. these are these are generalizations but there, there no, is, it, there is, I agree with you, it is. reflect on the thing that you're studying the, the sort of removal of oneself from 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 the minutiae into a sort of framework allows you to place constraints and everybody knows right this is another generalization that constraints are what allow us to make progress if the possibility if the, the possibilities were truly infinite right how would you make yeah. progress yeah you, you can't you have to choose you have to at least put your own restraints on right you have to choose something I agree though that that I wish we were more open to things like philosophy. And it's why and it gets back to that's part of what I mean by I despite you know kind of shitting on those fields for the last 10 minutes, I do agree that we need to kind of get rid of this, you know, uh, pompous circumstance that physics kind of has where oh, why do we need to listen? Why do we need to care? Why do we need why do we even need any of these other fields? Um you know, when we have the godsend that is physics and math, it's like, well, I mean, again, we have limits. As I said, I've, I've had that perspective thrown into my face a lot. Right. But so, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to draw sort of a, an analogy here, right. In the same way that you don't want to be too theoretical in what you're working on, 
and you want to be doing these these experiments in condensed matter, right? You you find yourself perfectly in the situation to do the 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 thing that's analogous, right? You 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 think that you want to so you want to remove this pomp or whatever the the singular version of pompous is pompousness. Yeah. <laughs> you want to remove that from from science from specifically say physics. You find yourself in a situation where you're going and presumably going to become the next generation of physicists, right? So yeah. it is incumbent upon you to, to through your actions, yes. make that change. If you truly believe in what you're saying. Yes, right? I agree. And that's the beauty, right? You, you, it's no longer theoretical. It's you have the opportunity today to send an email to somebody and be like, hey, I want to talk about this. Would you be open to it? Yeah. Not only that, would you be open to talking to, to it with the department with me? Like whatever it is, right? You have those kinds of concrete steps that you can take. I very much agree with this. You asked me earlier about what I can do to, to do that. I know we were talking earlier about just being okay with questioning things in your own field that might be a little bit dogmatic, but I, I would give the same answer for this. Yeah, I, I hope that I can create a culture in, in whatever part, a small part of the physics world I end up in that is a little bit more open to the limits of physics and to the virtues of some of these other forms of thought, you know, and, and especially in your personal life, man, your personal life gets so much better if you're more open to it. You know, when I finally, you know, as a kid, I said that I was always really good at math and science, you know, I was not as good at writing and, you know, and grammar and English. And for the longest of time, I made the stupid uh, conclusion that, oh, that means I shouldn't care about art and, and stories and things like that. And thank God I finally had some great English teachers later in my life in high school who were who kind of opened me up to like, no, you can get a lot of stuff out of this. And when I started enjoying that, man, my life just became so much more enriched and just so much more enjoyable. Oh my gosh. It's so much fun to take apart, take part in art and in stories. And that's just, and that's something that doesn't inherently happen in physics all the time, but it can. There's a lot of great story and a lot of great art that comes out of, you know, the life and thought and science. And it just gets underplayed by sometimes by our own wrongdoing. Well, I think kind of the thing that my mind goes to is uh, the impact of science fiction on physics, right? Yeah. It's, it's just, yeah. it's, it's, it's so true. You come up with new instruments based off something that you were inspired by. It's it, the, the inspiration is there. You could even do something that's not science fiction, right? You could watch this romantic comedy and something about the way that one of the series of events unfolds. It inspires you to conduct your experiment in a certain way, whatever it is. Of course. No, I, I totally agree with that. You, you'll find inspiration in crazy, strange places. Yeah. And, and honestly, even if you don't get like concrete you know, application of art into your, into your work in science. Like, I just feel like you're going to enjoy life so much more if you're open to it. I agree. You know what I mean? It's certainly. I, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of it. And just because again, when I know there's a diversity in humans, but there's a diversity in yourself too. You know, yeah. oh. there are multiple, there are multiple Connor Arnoffs or at least components of, of me that gets fulfilled by so many different things. Yeah. And I feel like if all I did was physics a hundred percent of the time, you know, my soul would be starved. Yeah. You know, I'd waste away. You are also uh, a time series of infinitely many states, right? You change yeah. today, you're different today than you were yesterday than you were the day before. I have to, yeah. Accepting that is very important. 
and some days and some days you know i just need to you know watch tech on titan with friends and play music and you know not read about perturbation theory for the ninth time that week you know right those are just some of the days you know some of the days that's the change that has happened that's made made me like this I'm going to bring this conversation a bit full circle, right? The first thing that we talked about how you, how you were finishing finals and then you went to, to vegetate, basically. That might not be a PC word, but just to relax, right? Uh, I did. I, yeah, I totally vegetated. There's something very fascinating about the importance of the relaxation, right? I'm pretty sure there's, there's evidence to suggest, like concrete neuro, neuroscience, to suggest that the rest, the resting component is what allows those memories or... or, or uh, stimuli to be properly processed mm-hmm. and consumed it definitely is yep yeah and i've that's all that's such a great i love a lot of the science that goes in there because you're right there is a lot of there actually is a lot of concrete evidence it's the one thing that we talk about sleep a lot uh you know the science of sleep we know so little about what it is but we have learned that like it's so important to learning because it like lets the mind rest and categorize itself and understand it right but even the days of rest all bodily functions <laughs> yeah right um but yeah those days of rest are definitely important for that um which you know what it's cool I, that i'm glad that you know even though i said that it's good for creatures for humans to be creatures of habit but the fact that we change so much from day even day to day uh that we're never the same person i feel like it's almost impossible to to fully to fully regiment your life like that. I just don't think it's going to be, it's ever really going to be possible. Right. And there's something to kind of going with the flow a bit, right? Because maybe being super regimented isn't the best way to do it, right? Maybe there's something between being fully regimented and between being completely procrastinistic words that that exists for you. Or maybe those two options or that spectrum is multidimensional, like whatever. I, I think it is. No, I think there definitely has to be. Um, I've been so, I've been, the, the one wisdom, I don't think I'm a very wise person. And I don't think I really understand the way the world is, you know, especially outside of science. But the one that I'm becoming more and more convinced of is Buddha had it right with that midway path thing. So, and we're in other people and other philosophies and other religions of you know, figured it out too. Famously, uh, Ignatius did it for the Jesuits, who are uh, a sect of, of Catholicism. But it's like, these guys figured out, it's like, well, the world, even though we really like to define it in extremes and in dichotomies, you're either this way or this way, man, almost every time it's somewhere in the middle. And this was so fundamental to somebody like Buddha that it became a core component of, uh, of the eightfold path. Um, I would be willing to say, I am more and more convinced that that is just the way the world is. It's, it's like almost every situation is going to be some shade of gray, some place in the middle, some balance, you know, balance the yin and yang, the push and pull. It's never one way or the other, man. Yeah. That's well said. And I think, just to, just to be a, a bit even more concrete, specifically maybe with the Buddha example, maybe with the, the habits example. Yeah. You can never completely assess where you are 
in in say the the, the this 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 realm of gray unless you've paid attention, right? Yes. If I don't know that I'm I'm, I'm performing some behavior, how am I ever going to address sort of pulling myself back one way or another? And I think that's the beauty of our agency, the the agency that our intelligence to make those observations provides us. Yes. Yeah. We do. We have to actively think about it. Uh, first, isn't that? I know I'm gonna. God, I sound like I'm a Buddhist bringing all this stuff up, but it's the first. Uh, the first. Um, the first uh, command of the eightfold of the eightfold path is is think correctly. That's the best translation for it. You have to actively think. You ha- have to actively think uh, to uh, to correct yourself. Yeah, that is part of our agency and our intelligence is that we have to constantly be evaluating ourselves, making small changes uh, to get to that comfortable place in life where we're doing it just right. Because you're right, I don't think I'll ever be a perfect regimented person, man. I, I don't think it's possible as much as I've been given that advice by a lot of people who love me that I should work to make my life as regimented as possible. And it will, it probably would serve well for my work maybe. I don't know, man. It's just, it doesn't fit. I, it, I start to get restless. I start, you know, I start to feel like trapped and chained by it. Right. And I think that's the point at which you recognize that as a potential constraint, not fully a constraint. And then in the same way that you would science experiment, right? Okay. This is the, this is the constraint. My, my desired outcome is perhaps uh, efficiency, utility, whatever it is. Yeah, let's yeah. try let's just try i think that's 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 what you can do yeah uh, and everyone's going to be a little bit different because because honestly i'm a lot but I, I you know i've been talking a lot about how oh i can't be regimented at all i have no habits i'm probably more regimented than some people trust me i've met i've met a lot of like true rolling stones man who have no who have none of that and like that would be too much in the other direction that's what i'm saying it's to to me everyone has their own has their own midway path to follow uh, but yeah, it really definitely takes work to put those constraints, test them, see if they work, go back, reevaluate. That's, I mean, in a weird way, that's science, man. You really can science even your own life. There you go. That's why you should be a physicalist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't disagree. <laughs> yes. Hey man. Well, thank you good. so much. This has been good. Thank you for your time. And thanks for, I mean, thanks for sharing actually. No, thank you so much, Mo. I, I, I definitely had a lot of fun doing this. Uh, I definitely was nervous coming on, especially yeah. after, especially after listening to both Josh and, uh, and uh, Rob's, Rob's stories today. Most, and, and I think about it when, you know, where I thought it was, I was, I think I was definitely a lot more rambly than they were um who cares i i feel like this one uh, evoked a lot of passion in me right because i i relate to a lot of the things that you're saying on a very deep level like maybe, maybe i don't necessarily come off yeah no i and i'm glad for it because yeah. and i'm glad you're doing this mostly because i you know i've always had the problem pulling the trigger you know doing uh, especially a lot of creative projects i've always wanted to do in the past yeah. and so to me you're you're inspirational to me as well to uh to definitely go out and do stuff i appreciate that and i think you should i think uh you know from my experience with you which is a bit limited right uh i see i see that like your your commentary just on anime for instance right 
or your, your, your opinions, your, your, your observations, whatever they I, are. I am opinionated. Yes. Yeah. That's fun. I, I used yeah. to think I didn't have opinions until I stopped being afraid. Yeah. See, I, and oh my God. Yeah. This is what I love. I do love talking with you. You're, you're, you're so much inside of the things I could do another hour talk on this. I'm glad that we talked about, you know, my science world and what my work is actually in. But I, uh, like I have always been such a critic when I around art a lot and in a weird way I feel like that has sometimes stopped me uh from doing it from doing a lot of art myself you know even as like a hobby for fun because like I feel like I'm always being way too critical of myself yeah uh hey that's a deep point there's two things there one is being critical right because I'm I'm being critical therefore I'll be critical to myself but I think the thing the second thing is you realize how difficult it is yeah and because it's difficult you realize how painful it will be if you actually don't do it right that there's there's a danger to knowing too much about the process it really is my my favorite of this though is that it's why like if you like we've talked a lot of especially about anime i'm very opinionated about anime yeah. i think the reason that i can be though is that while i know a lot about the like mechanics of like filmmaking and stuff like that i've never done it myself so I don't, I, we don't, we, we haven't really talked too much about music. I, that is where, for the most part, my training is in, you know, I played music and a bunch of different instruments all growing up, but I have tried to make music and I should try more because I know practice makes you better, but I feel like I am, I, I am so mediocre at it that um, I actually am almost not critical at all of any music. Uh, it, and I don't know if that's wholly explains it because part of me also isn't critical of music because like for whatever reason, I just love like almost all music. Like yeah. it's very hard for me to find a song where I can't find any value in it whatsoever, man. You know? Yeah. That's kind of uh, beautiful, right? It's like, it's this, uh, it's the thing that balances you out maybe. <laughs> yeah, cause like, cause you can find me there again. We talked forever and you know, uh, if uh, any listeners haven't figured this out yet, I can be very opinionated very opinionated and definitely about anime and then i'm just not about music like i I love the music that i love i mean i can tell you that but i very rarely will like be critical of music i like no i I feel bad too because like the music world is not like that people love to have their opinions and love to be very critical of music and they love to be critical of other people's tastes in music and i hate that because I get into conversations and when you first get into those conversations and you talk about the music that people love, they'll be scared. <laughs> uh, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, I like this. They'll try to qualify it with, well, I don't, you know, know a lot about music, but this is what I enjoy. And I'm like, I don't care. Like, yeah. love what you love and share that with me. No, I, I amen to that, right? I hate substantiating. I do it sometimes still, but I'm trying to do it less and less, right? Yeah. It's because why, why, why should I substantiate? I should sub- substantiate maybe after the fact <laughs> because I want to talk, I want to have a discussion about it. I love the song, period. And here's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I've tried to start bringing that into anime and, and, and movies because when I first got into stuff like that and I've been around the anime community for a long, 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 long time. Um, when I first started interacting it on the internet, I was very negative about a lot of shows and I appreciated the people who were also negative and could put that into good words. And, 
and that spread a lot more hate than I really wanted to. And here's a question. Yeah. Do you find it yeah. easier to find? I am, uh, keep on. Are we, are we have a lag or something? Yeah. Do, do you find it easier to, to find, or sorry, do you find it easier to find? Is it easier to find the thing, the negatives, right? Is that, is that valid or no? I'm, I would have you, I think in the past I would have said, yes, it is easier to find the negatives. I actually don't think that that's as true anymore uh, for me. And it's because I actively worked on that in the last four years. I think I've changed in that. Um, because I think it, because I, I, the reason I want to say this is that for me, it's no longer that, but I think it just depends on who you are. I think for me, four or five years ago, it was easier for me to find the faults in something because that's what I trained myself to look for. Exactly. To look for these deficiencies instead of looking for the things that I love, which is probably why in music, I no longer have those. I very rarely search for the deficiencies in, in music. I'm always searching for the reason I love songs. And I'm very good about talking about why I love a song. I am horrible at talking about why I think a song is bad. Like why don't, I don't even want to say like why I think it's bad. It's like why I don't vibe with it. Yeah. Like I, I am very bad at explaining why I don't love a song. Um, and especially with film, I was the opposite. I was really good at explaining why I thought something was boring or didn't speak to me. But actually for the longest of time, I just like had favorites and I don't know. And I didn't really know why. Yeah. Um, hey man, the, the quote that comes to mind is the general Iroh quote, right? Uh, you, yes. I'll say it, right? If you look for the light, often you will find it. But if you look for the darkness, it's often all you'll ever see. Right. Yes. It's just, it, it's so true. Those platitudes, right? Yeah. It's like, I, I've trained myself to look for the things that are difficult. Therefore, I'm better at the, finding the things that are difficult. And I'm going to keep doing that. And it's this positive feedback loop. Yes. And you and, can do the same thing for the positive things. Yeah. And I, and I think that, and I try to focus on that more, especially in a field like, you know, I watch anime. I have no influence on this whatsoever, which sucks. But I mean, we kind of do in an abstract sense. I The reason I focused on what I didn't like is because I realized that all these shows that I love were from a bygone era and all the new shows coming out had a bunch of stuff that I hated. And so I was constantly pointing out why I hated these things and using that. And my excuse was like, I hate the way that this field is going. You know, why, you know, why not push against it? But I learned that actually you can still do that by doing the opposite, by pointing out the things that you love and say like, I wish I saw that more instead of framing it the other way around, which is, this is dog shit. <laughs> I want there to be less dog shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I feel. Uh, it. I don't. I definitely feel it. But it's again, it's uh, the separation of self to realize that that's what you're doing, and then to 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 change the direction. Yeah, and I. Any of my friends listening to this, I know that this comes across as hollow uh, when talking about anime, especially because. I know that all my friends have shit on a bunch of shows that people love. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this probably rings pretty hollow. Since <laughs> I really have spent a lot of time shitting on stuff that I hate in that field. Yeah. Uh, man, I should. As someone who's seen you do it, I'm, I'm, I'm quite frankly entertained. Right. <laughs> I try to make it at least entertaining. I'm almost more entertained by your take than I am the show. <laughs> hey, that's. 
that is one of the best things about art though isn't it yeah. is that experiencing it is fun but man talking about it is so much fun yeah that's why uh that's why i have drained oh, god knows how many hundreds of hours into watching analytic youtube videos on all my favorite subjects so you think you're gonna do the the channel where you where you do your commentary on anime <laughs> i don't know actually um the problem i probably should is what i'm gonna say the reason why i have been uh, hesitant to do it is that i sometimes catch myself realizing that either a it's just gonna all be way too negative or b i don't really have anything super new to say where and this might be my problem with the fact that i watch too much youtube it's like i can find videos where somebody has talked about you know this thing already and i don't know if i can add anything new but i can so what i would say to that is i've i've been there and it's the reason why i'm doing the podcast right I'm sure yeah. people have talked about physics and identity before, but it doesn't matter because these are idiosyncratic, right? They're, they're special to me because I'm having the conversation, but it's also like you specifically, even if you say the same thing, I'm, it's coming from you. There's an entire context that surrounds you. I agree. And I, I think the, the, the first point is actually more important because maybe at some point it's not for others. Maybe it's for yourself. That's right? true. And that's kind of the beauty of the art in and of itself. It's maybe it is for me as much as it is for you. No, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Anyway, yeah, no, true. Man, maybe people, you know, maybe people do need to hear why FMA is actually even better than people give it credit for and it's not overrated whatsoever. Do it. I say send it. Well, I might actually have to one of these days. No, all you got to do is uh, just start hit record, right? That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I'm, I'm feeling so motivated. I, I, I do hate these moments though, in the sense that like, I, I get these like bursts of motivation, especially from talking to really inspirational people like you. Uh, and then you just kind of actually have to do it at some point. And I don't want that motivation to go away. I'll have to try it out though then. And, hey, let's just keep talking then. There you go. That's how you, that's how you overcome that problem. <laughs> <laughs> just always have that moment. Just always have that have motivation there. It. Oh, I love it. That's so perfect. Hey, real talk. That's what I'm after. I, I'm, I'm after having this kind of a moment with as many people as I can and hopefully, hopefully it makes some change.